a rise of intra-societal inequality. And I, and I think that's part of the, the big issue where you have drastic levels of inequality with and beyond the city, right? We see levels of higher of housing affordability issues in rural spaces as well. So a lot of times they get left out of that conversation in terms of inequality overall. And even when we think about the kind of previous um, comments about housing wealth, it's continuously growing, right? So white families compared to black and Latinx families have his uh, multiplier effect on their housing wealth compared to those other racial groups. And that's problematic. There's no there's no real sense of like what we're going to do to deal with that. There has been some federal legislation from different Democratic candidates to solve the issue based on bonds and establishing certain types of savings accounts and um, really thinking about other ways to kind of address the wealth issue. But depending on the ebb and flow of politics, those conversations get left out the mix. That was Dr. Prentice Danzler, an assistant professor in the Urban Studies Institute at Georgia State University. His work is centered on topics such as urban poverty, inequality, housing policy, race and ethnic relations, and community development. Affordability of housing in America is a challenge. In 2018, the National Low-Income Housing Coalition discovered that a renter working 40 hours a week and earning minimum wage cannot afford a typical two-bedroom apartment in any counties across the United States. Welcome, fellow urban enthusiasts. I am Sabah Sarkil, and with me is... Brett Kahn. And as you know by now, we are both second-year urban planning grad students at the University of Georgia. And today's episode is titled, Affordable Housing. Dr. Denzler, my first question to you is, what are your thoughts on HUD defining affordable housing as one that a household can obtain for 30% or less of its income? Do you think it is a fair measurement to solely consider income as the measurement of affordability? Or are there other nuances such as, you know, transportation expenditure or maybe food deserts that are currently overlooked by HUD? Yeah, well, this is a good question. Um, I think it's a start. A more accurate measure, as you suggest, would take into account transportation, food, childcare, and other common expenses that many households have. However, the way the measure is constructed is that the other 70% would be for those expenses, right? So it is at best ambiguous, right? So we think about the historical development of where this actual um, threshold came from. By 1969, the escalation of rents for a lot of public housing authorities um, struggling to meet kind of the operation and maintenance costs uh, nearly nullified the purpose of the public housing program that was established back in 1937. Um, and part of the program was really to serve the nation's most neediest households, right? Those who could not afford to um, pay for their rents or secure a mortgage for a house over their heads. Um, so to reverse this around 1968, 1969, um, through some federal legislation, the rent threshold was established at 25% of family income. And that's to say that a family would be required to pay just one quarter of its income to rent. Um, but by 19, uh, I believe it's 81, this threshold had been raised to 30%, which today remains the rent standard for most rental housing programs. And also as a rule of thumb, that's the threshold that we look at too when we're thinking about housing affordability. So we still have like the same measure for the last 40 years 
about housing costs as is related to mostly rental properties, right? So we can understand that mortgage, people that are homeowners and people that hold a mortgage fit into a different area. Um, but like you said, right, housing is not just the roof over one's head since now people are looking for more amenities within our communities, right? So when we see luxury apartments and new developments, a lot of those have gyms and even food trucks coming up and even some places even have childcare. So the, the role of housing is just the housing unit is has been becoming increasingly more complicated and more nuanced. So at best, we can think about this 30 percent measure is that underestimate of the real housing expenses that most families have in, in the nation. Talking about measurements and standards, what are your thoughts on affordability being calculated with area median income? How are we going to make housing affordable for those that fall below AMI? Summer. What? Context! Oh, God. <clears throat> now, you know, we have to add a little context, so you can't just go into the whole question like that. So, for our viewers that may not be familiar, what exactly is AMI anyway? AMI stands for Area Median Income. It is calculated and released every year by the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, also referred to as HUD. AMI is the combined average household income. AMI sets the rent of a subsidized unit and what households can qualify for that rent level. To calculate AMI, you need both your household size and household income. Now, Subba, continue on. Hmm. Are you done? Well, Dr. Prentice, you can continue, and I'm really sorry for this interruption. So when we think about cities like New York and San Francisco, those AMI thresholds are more money than people spend in other kind of rural spaces or other cities um, that are not on the coast. And even thinking about the huge kind of disparities in terms of using those measures still presents a challenge for people that are not even getting into those, those, um, those income brackets or those income ranges. The other piece I think is interesting or kind of important to this conversation is think about how cities actually work. And for any type of city, you need um, certain type of service jobs or certain type of maintenance of operation jobs that tend to function or make your city run. And when cities have these kind of absorbent amount of housing costs, they leave out those people who actually make that city run, right? You think about all the public service jobs, you think about um, kind of social service jobs in terms of um, fire and teachers and police officers, a lot of those kind of employment opportunities get reduced, right? Or those people cannot afford to live in a city for which they're helping to operate on a daily basis. So a lot of ways in which we're using these measures, I would argue that we're kind of underestimating the overall housing crisis by only relying on measures like AMI to meet or solve the, the housing crisis as it is. Great points. So should zoning regulations be accommodating of higher density in order to increase the supply of affordable housing? I think that would be a start. Um, higher density thresholds allow developers to build more units. However, there is still a big conversation about what can and what will developers do, even if you do this, right? In the case of affordable housing, we see that oftentimes, even though there are federal programs such as the Low Income Housing Tax Credit, um, which we normally refer to as LIHTC. Hmm. What is LIHTC? Well, LIHTC was created in 1986, and it stands for Low Income Housing Tax Credit. It has financed 3.2 million affordable apartments, providing homes to roughly 7.4 million low income households. 
The Emergency Affordable Housing Act of 2020 expands LIHTC to house more families, including the most vulnerable during these times of pandemic. Um, and kind of density requirements or densely or raising density thresholds, there's still a lot of developers not engaging in providing affordable housing, right? So that's from the developer side. On the flip side, there's a lot of stigma associated with affordable housing, right? Given the people that are um, deemed to live there. Um, and this is a by local residents as well, the kind of idea of NIMBYism, right? Not in my backyard. So let's talk about NIMBY or not in my backyard. You've heard the saying, not in my backyard. It's a fight breaking out in cities across North Texas. And tonight in Plano, well, they're all fired up about a plan to build more apartments. We're talking thousands of employees who need a place to live. One group argues more apartments and high-density housing are no good. We think it changes the suburban character of Plano into a more urbanized environment. Not in my backyard was coined in 1980 by the late Nicholas Ridley, a British conservative politician who was the Secretary of State for the Environment. NIMBY is just one of a number of acronyms used to describe opponents of building projects or infrastructure developments. And oftentimes, the use of this advocacy lies along racial discriminatory practices. A lot of communities are resistant to build this type of housing, and partly it's because of the, the kind of long understanding or the long kind of um, mythology that um, lower income people or people of color moving into a neighborhood decrease property values. And time and time again, there's a lot of studies that refute that idea. But I, I would believe that it's so much embedded in how we think about housing or how most people think about housing um, today that that's another kind of barrier for building more affordable housing. So to continue on a similar theme, what are your thoughts on beliefs held by some that affordable housing initiatives are ruining suburbs and cities? Yeah, to that point, um, I think it's a problematic kind of narrative or kind of idea, right? If it typically does not have effect on, you know, um, property values, then you would think that there's going to be some room for compromise in this space. But we also understand that housing is not just like about expenses that people are building on a house. It's not just about finding a place to live. There's a deep racialized history within this country about the role of housing and actually securing a place to call home. And I believe that, and I would argue that a lot of times when we're thinking about this idea of affordable housing and where it's being built, it's purely based on these kind of big debates around housing advocates in and of themselves, right? So within the housing world, there's, there's kind of two um, contentious areas um, or two sides of the coin in terms of thinking about housing. There's one kind of sect or kind of group that thinks about the mobility issue, right? So you need to open up neighborhoods and communities that historically have been excluded to marginalized groups, particularly along the lines of race and class. But there's also a, another kind of side of that kind of argument thinking about the frame of community development, right? So what are the policies and contextually localized based programs that we can do to improve the communities where people are actually living in, right? So it's not necessarily moving them to quote unquote better communities. It's actually about improving the neighborhoods that they live in right now. And I would argue that in doing the kind of mobility approach, you kind of abandon the idea that these neighborhoods can change, which tends to be very problematic when we think about processes like gentrification or other kind of demographic changes because Overnight, it seems like for a lot of people that neighborhoods that historically have been marginalized, that historically been disinvested in, 
have overnight turned into these new hip and cool places for a lot of people to move into, right? So it kind of negates the nature that these places can't be quote unquote revitalized or redeveloped or invested in. And at the same time, there's a politics of intervention on the other side. You can design programs and policies to improve these communities, but how long do people living within these communities have to wait until they actually see the rewards of those improvements? So there's a kind of contentious debate. I think both sides are coming at it from, we need more affordable and adequate housing, but there's different ways and different approaches on how to get there. In one of our previous episodes, we talked about policies like redlining, which ends up being disadvantageous to targeted racial groups. Could you expand on how these policies affect home ownership today? In terms of the redlining issue that still plays us today, um, there's a lot of work, right? So when you look at some of these kind of historic um, maps, right, these redlining maps, they were particularly zoned out black and brown communities as like places that you could not um, actually allocate mortgages to. There's a great kind of correlation or causation in terms of how these maps have still long term effects on these communities today. Right. So like when we think about mortgages, when we think about investments, these maps point to a a series of like spatial distribution of resources or the lack thereof. And I would argue that a lot of times when we think about the importance of the neighborhood context or the importance of the community context, we need to understand that a lot of these places didn't happen by uh, circumstance, right? Like they were planned this way. They were planned to be places that people wouldn't invest in. They were planned to be places of um, high poverty rates and high unemployment rates and high crime rates, right? So a lot of times when we're thinking about the, the continuing influence of redlining, I would argue that a lot of times these date back to historical understandings of how policies have shaped and reshaped communities and neighborhoods more broadly. That leads me into the second point. And when we really think about issues around gentrification and neighborhood change, the the idea that neighborhoods change here and there is, is pretty much an accepted one. Like most neighborhoods don't change as much. Right. They don't drastically change from year to year. But you do have a growing amount of neighborhoods that are being remade overnight. Right. And I say overnight is a loose term to think about in the short term within a few years here and there. Again, these are planned decisions. So when planners are making different um, suggestions about zoning issues within particular spaces or local municipalities and localities are designing, like you said before, right, increased density within particular places or the state allocates new money based on federal programs to increase the amount of affordable housing. These all these kind of policies and programs, when taken in um, in in connection with one another, really reshape that that urban landscape that we talk about. So in that space, when we think about issues of gentrification, part of the concern is that a lot of people that live in these communities will be displaced, as you alluded to. And part of it is that we haven't thought about or we haven't imagined what we could do to keep people in place. Right. And even when we do, most municipalities or cities are not taking those into account. I say this, for example, a lot of cities are competing with each other to, you know, attract higher level income groups, more capital investment into their, their, you know, municipal areas, their metropolitan regions. And as a result, um, the needs of people in a lower income bracket are not being fully kind of taken into account. And it, and, and within issues like this, they get those kind of issues get exacerbated. Um, a lot of times when we think about um, spaces that have been gentrified or are undergoing gentrification, there are ways to keep people in place, right? So if you're a longtime homeowner, a longtime renter, 
Are there rent controls that we can play, put into those local municipalities? Are there tax freezes for longtime residents of lower income statuses that we can put into those localities? And these are things that uh, most cities and localities don't want to deal with because it's a reduction in revenue. But part of it is that I would argue that a lot of cities are not planning or um, designing policies and programs for their current residents. A lot of them are in this kind of growth machine, growth mentality to attract new capital and using people as their former capital and redeveloping those er urban areas. So when we think about the kind of external structural forces that are shaping these places, I, I would argue that that's way more kind of important or, or pertinent or salient compared to the idea that you know, people at lower income need to be more financially literate because a lot of the, the research shows that people, even at the lower income, pay their rent or their, or their mortgages first and foremost. And a lot of the other kind of amenities that people think that they shouldn't have are not even secondary on their list in terms of what they're actually paying for. Um, we do have a big issue with jobs and, 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 and income, right? So wages have not historically gone up at the same rate as housing costs. And so you get this very huge disparity in what people make versus what they can pay to live in certain places that continues to reproduce the same cycles of disadvantage that we're largely talking about in this conversation. So you touched on disparities and inequity that exist in urban spaces. And we do have tools like inclusionary zoning to, you know, ideally mitigate these issues. But in reality, not so much. Do you think there is an underlying incompetency of inclusionary zoning to deal with affordability? I would argue that my concern is less about inclusionary zoning, right? This is just one tool of community development. And it's, it needs to, like I always say, with all policies and programs, while you need kind of federal direction on what needs to happen, they need to be contextually based and culturally competent in how they're implemented, designed, um, and actually analyzed and assessed. Um, the other piece I think is more important is that we have a large issue in this, this country about housing as a private commodity, right? It's not a human right. It's not even really considered a public good in a lot of spaces. It's really a private commodity that's being bought and sold on the private market. Um, and because of that, you get these instances where people are treating it just as that, right? You, when we talked about earlier in terms of housing being the, the main and the largest source of wealth creation in this country, as a result, people are trying to protect that wealth. They're trying to protect that asset. At the same time, when we think about um, other forms of kind of protection, homeowners don't want affordable housing in there, right? They don't think those people are necessary or deserving of living in particular neighborhoods. And unless we have a, a, a how, unless we have a stark switch to housing as a human right, my fear is that we'll have the same type of um, reproduction of these disadvantages that are largely associated with housing, but impact every other kind of aspect of human life, right? When we think about educational outcomes, when we think about environmental um, disadvantages or environmental racism, when we think about crime and disorder, when we think about the politics or the local politics in terms of community involvement, who's more or less likely to be involved in local decision-making, a lot of this relates to people's kind of housing tenure statuses within these spaces. So my, my, my goal in terms of research is kind of highlighting those kind of nuances where if we had a more kind of public engagement or um, a, a drastic shift to housing as a human right, maybe we could kind of address a lot of the issues that we see that are deemed from the housing, the urban housing crisis or even just the housing crisis that we have. That's a very powerful statement you just made. I often wonder myself why housing is not a right. I mean, it counts as one of the three basic necessities for human life. 
but that probably would take a fundamental shift in thinking so anyway you co-authored a paper neighborhood satisfaction a study of a low income urban community could you briefly describe it and expand on how you see neighborhood satisfaction working in tandem with housing affordability what we found out is that the quality of social networks the neighborhood physical conditions the safety and the quality of public services are positively associated with neighborhood satisfaction and that that's kind of expected right when we think about all the things that people want in their type of neighborhoods we did still see a lot of kind of high levels of satisfaction among these households right so while there's an external group painting the picture that these neighborhoods are um, not great places to live and not and people are unsatisfied with where they live. We find the complete opposite. We say, no, there's a lot of things that people actually do like about their neighborhoods. So there's a mischaracterization about the quality of these neighborhoods from the people themselves. In, in a more recent study, my colleague Antoine Jones, he's a sociologist at uh, George Washington University in D.C., and we did a, 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 another paper looking at neighborhood perceptions of residential mobility across 10 neighborhoods across the country um, through the NEKC Foundation Making Connections Initiatives. And what this study did was it did three waves of data collection at the household level and a ton of great questions about how people actually perceive their local neighborhood context. Um, and what we show is that, like, instead of a, and a lot of the kind of to back up a second, a lot of the kind of uh, reason we see this kind of disconnect between how people actually think about their neighborhoods and policymakers, policymakers think about their neighborhoods is based on the type of data that we use. Right. So census data is a very kind of, quote unquote, objective measure in terms of thinking about the overall conditions of different places. And it's great data. Right. But it has its limitations. That's not necessarily how people perceive their neighborhoods. And what we found in this more recent paper that came out earlier this year um, is that the subjective um, measures of neighborhood context matter much more than the actual objective neighborhood setting measures, right, that we get from the census, right? So really, when we think about neighborhood satisfaction, you have to understand how people themselves think about these places and not just rely on objective measures to make sense of it, right? You can't just let yourself, you can't lead yourself to think about um, unemployment rates are this high and poverty rates are this high. So there's no way that people could live here or want to live here. We see that there's a lot of reason to think the opposite. Um, we were also um, lucky enough that there's a lot of qualitative ethnographic interview data and studies that's really out there point, painting to the same idea, right? A lot of ways in which there's these objective considerations about these neighborhoods tend to be very problematic. And I would argue that we need to really understand how people at the local level perceive um, their neighborhoods more generally. Housing voucher is one of the tools implemented to make housing affordable in the States. But there are numerous testimonies that prove stigmatization of voucher holders leading to discrimination by landowners. Even with legislation such as source of income laws, this issue is not solved. Could you please expand on that? Um, I've kind of stayed away to housing voucher piece for a particular, a few reasons. One is that it's more of a, it is a newer program, but I, I would argue that a lot of times when we think about other programs, my fear is that housing vouchers are still going to be suffer from the same stigmatization that public housing has undergone over the years. To back up, housing vouchers are, yeah, one tool, right, for alleviating the financial burdens for, for families. And usually in the country, we see two dominant types. One is the housing choice voucher program where a family gets an actual rental subsidy. It pays usually up to 70% of their rent, but they're forced to find a unit in the private market. 
There are other vouchers in terms of project-based vouchers where the voucher subsidy is tied to a specific unit. And that's another kind of area that people are looking in in terms of like how they're thinking about um, the voucher usage and the limitations and the um, inspirations of it. There's a great colleague of mine, um, Eva Rosen, who's a sociologist at Georgetown, and her new book is really pointing to this issue, right? The, the voucher promise, right? So a lot of a lot of what the voucher program was supposed to do is open up new markets, new housing markets to historically marginalized communities. But why that hasn't happened has become way more nuanced, right? So you have issues of landlords not opting in to that, that, that uh, program. You have issues of limiting or limited housing supply within their particular areas. You have issues that even if they were to gain access into a private unit in a, a quote unquote better neighborhood, that further detaches them from the community that serves as a source of support um, and comfort for families and households. Um, so I think part of the other reason is that that's the kind of rental side or the income side, right? But there's also um, we haven't really solved the, the urban housing crisis. And this is not a crisis unique to the United States. It's really a global crisis, right? When you look at other countries and large urban areas, there's a, a post-global financial crisis um, that some researchers say tend to be triggered by a few things. One is that there's an acceleration of the reurbanization of people and capital, right? So like when we think historically about where people used to live, some used to live in the suburbs, and now a lot of those people are returning to the inner city, right? They're returning to the cities as places of good job opportunity amenities. Nobody, a lot of people don't want to be on the highway for long periods of time. Thank you, Dr. Danzler. I think this concludes our interview. We're grateful that you're sharing the space with us and drawing insights on a challenging topic like affordability. Now that you have let us talk, as always, we want to let you talk. Hop over to lettuscd.com and engage in discussion with fellow urban enthusiasts. If you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Brett. Special shout out to Ebony Hatchet for music production. And thanks to Let Us Group for the executive production of this podcast. Until next time.